The Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. An Epilogue to Book One. Now that we've gotten to the end of Book One, I thought it might be good to do a quick recap before addressing a bit of what was going on between the lines. For the recap, the power has gone out one morning while Martin was at work. Since it looks like a potentially long outage, he decides to head home. The trouble is, so did just about everybody else. The resulting transportation snarl scuttles his plan A to get home by bus. His plan B was to walk the fifty miles rather than be stuck in town for who knew how long. While walking out, he encounters Susan, a woman he knows only casually, the bank teller he dealt with each week. A simple act of walking the same way home morphs into making sure she gets home safe. When they get to her home, and it's burning down, his simple chivalry courtesy gets progressively more difficult to accomplish. Susan tries not to be difficult, but she's also very much a city person. This seems to be the point that some readers decided that Susan was really too much trouble and ought to be kicked to the curb. So, the question is, should Martin have dumped Susan and traveled alone? One reader recently commented that if Susan had been eaten by a bear or something, his reaction would have been, meh, no big loss. His sentiment isn't uncommon. I've heard other readers suggest that Martin would have been better off to just dump the whiny city girl and make better time alone. They're right, in a way. Trying to help Susan does slow Martin down quite a lot. But if we're honest with ourselves, how easily would we be able to kick someone to the curb, abandon them, and press on alone? If that extra person had been Martin's wife, but she was still just as cityfied and helpless, would the critics still think it was meh if she was eaten by a bear? Probably not. There's a lot more to a husband-wife relationship. If Susan had been, say, a sister or a cousin, he still couldn't just dump her. There would be family obligations to help, despite whether they were a drag on his progress or not. Now, if the other person was a total stranger, maybe even Martin the Boy Scout could have said to the problematic total stranger, Look, I hope you find a hotel someplace, but I've got to get going. Bye. That would have been a whole lot easier. What if that extra person wasn't a total stranger? What if it was you, assuming you're a guy, and she was the friendly waitress at the cafe that you regularly ate lunch in. Or, if you're a gal, the hunky building security desk guy that you say good morning to every workday and perhaps share a few sentences of chat while you wait for the elevator. Would that familiar person be easy for you to kick to the curb? What I was trying to do with Susan was create someone that was on that borderline between the total stranger that Martin could dump without looking self-centered and petty, and someone that Martin was obliged to help, no matter how big of a pain they were. I didn't want his choice to help her or leave her to be an easy one. Some readers still think he should have dumped Susan. Perhaps I had been too subtle. Another complication to the dump-or-help decision is that Martin is a guy and Susan is attractive and nice. Now, admittedly, guys aren't too deep that way. It's harder to be dispassionate toward a pretty girl. 
But in a lot of stories, you can spot the eventual romance because the male protagonist is single, and he rescues an attractive single female. As a reader, you can just see the inevitable romance a mile away. To complicate things even more, which sounds like I don't like Martin because I keep making his life so difficult, but to complicate things a little more, I thought, what if instead of the usual single guy rescues the single damsel in distress, what if the rescuer was married? Things wouldn't be quite so simple. Years ago, at a different company I used to work for, several of us were standing around talking after work, and Don, a sales guy, solemnly announced, I have never once cheated on my wife. Everyone was nodding their moral approval. Then, after a little pause, Don said, But then, I haven't had any offers. Brumtish. That's the kind of situation Martin was in. He was comfortably married and didn't have a wandering eye. But, like sales guy Don, he hadn't had any offers either, so he'd never had to deal with it. Circumstances paired him up with a nice girl. He was only partially prepared for a walk home. He wasn't at all prepared to find himself liking someone. Also, part of that is that there's something about people going through a stressful event together that creates a bond between them, even if they weren't looking for one. In my chat with Todd a couple of weeks ago, I was telling him about one of the origins of the Siege of New Hampshire story, being almost stuck in Boston when the city was locked down during the search for the Marathon bombers. Not to repeat myself too much from the Todd interview, but just for context, I really didn't want to sleep on the floor beside my desk and for, well, who knew how long. I mean, they hadn't tracked down the bombers for several days after the bombing. How long was it going to take to find them? If they were even still in the area, the city could have been locked down for a week. I'd much rather have been locked down at home not at work. Knowing the bus routes and schedules, there was a chance that a bus from New Hampshire that normally stopped at the airport before continuing on into the city wouldn't be allowed into the city and would get sent back to New Hampshire. I wanted to catch that bus. I had to get a cab to the airport pretty quickly. Trouble was, there weren't any cabs. At the corner of State and Congress streets, where there was usually a line of cabs, stood a worried-looking woman. She had a similar plan, but her bus, a Plymouth and Brockton bus, would go to the South Shore. We agreed to share any cab we might find. She watched State Street, I watched Congress. We did finally flag down a lone cab. I won't belabor the story with extra details, but after the cab dropped us off at the lower level of Terminal A, we both had been through a little bit of an adventure. Despite the fact that her bus's pickup spot was about 30 yards or so to the left, she opted to pace and chat about her experiences and her worries near where I was standing at my bus's pickup spot. We both kept an eye out for each other's buses. When her bus came, but mine hadn't yet, she seemed genuinely concerned over whether I would be okay, like she was somehow abandoning me. I reassured her that I'd be fine and waved as she looked out the window while her bus pulled away. I found that experience very interesting. This was someone that I had never met before and had only known for an hour or so. We hadn't even exchanged first names. Yet she seemed far more concerned about my welfare than our mutual stranger's status should have merited. 
I mean, this is the big city, after all. You don't even make eye contact with other city people. There was something about the stress of the moment and the shared adventure, even if for only an hour, that sparked some vestige of a bond that city strangers just don't usually get. That's kind of what was going on with Martin and Susan. They really didn't know each other beyond their weekly bank teller-customer interactions, but going through what they did, even on the first day, had spawned a bond that neither of them expected nor quite knew what to do with. This unexpected and unfamiliar feeling is part of their sometimes awkward conversations. I know some readers have complained that the dialogue in the book was stiff or awkward. Well, it could be that I'm just not that good at writing dialogue. Or it could be that those readers don't remember what it was like to be a teenager trying to talk to an attractive someone of the opposite sex. Granted, neither Martin nor Susan are teens anymore. They're adults. But if we're honest, adulthood doesn't necessarily make things less awkward. On top of ordinary awkwardness, Martin is not Casanova. He was a completely comfortably married man, suddenly in the company of an attractive woman. Susan isn't some smooth-talking Delilah. She was a social wallflower, suddenly in the company of a nice but married man. Anyhow, most of you have already figured that stuff out. But for those who didn't get it, that's what was going on. I hope this helps. Book one is, of course, a getting-home story. And, with the end of chapter 14, Martin made it home. Yay, right? Happy ending. Of course, if the power grid failure had been that widespread, it's not like he came home to life as it had been when he left for work that Monday morning. No, there's still no power, and the supply chain is still broken down. They still have to deal with all of that. This is where Book 2, Siege Fall, picks up the story. Martin, his wife Margaret, and their ad hoc new house guest, Susan, have to adapt and deal with a grid-down world. They're not super preppers, with a bunker filled with a year's supply of MREs, etc. They are, however, country folk with some DIY resourcefulness. I do plan to continue the story, narrating book two, but since the Christmas season is upon me, I need to take a break to ensure I get my holiday chores done. Ideally, chapter one of book two will come out Friday, December 31st. If, in the meantime, you had any comments you wanted to share, you can email them to mick at mick-roland.com. Thanks for hanging in there all the way through book one. I really do appreciate it. And Merry Christmas from New Hampshire.